Hello, hello. Welcome to Tucker to Out with me, Ami Tucker. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is reconnecting with people that have been part of, you know, different phases in my life and that I haven't seen in forever. My next guest and I actually met on the set of her husband's movie back in 2001. This is a phase when I decided, okay, I'm going to work on film sets. And I became a PA who was running around getting coffee for actors. And maybe I took Cal Penn jet skiing on Lake Travis in Austin. That's a whole other story, guys. Dr. Suman Bendukar was the chief learning officer at USC's Race and Equity Center. And the last 20 years or so, she has really focused on building community strength as well as institutional capacity for social and racial justice in the higher education sector. She is currently a DEI strategist, consultant, and trainer. And if you don't know what any of this means, that's okay. I had an idea, but I really got her to break it down for me. And she is doing some really important work, guys. I absolutely love talking to her. She's not only insanely smart, she's just such a cool chick, and it was so awesome to reconnect and also make fun of ourselves from 20 years ago. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Suman Bendukar. We are supported by Rocket Club. Rocket Club is the virtual entrepreneurship, coding, and robotics academy for kids age seven through 14. And guys, my seven-year-old started the class like a month ago and absolutely loves it. They've covered topics such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies and the coding behind the technology. They've talked about stock market analysis, NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens, which I'm trying to figure out what that means. And they do all of it through a exciting gamified curriculum. So it's super engaging and fun for kids. They also have 22 additional communities, including coding, robotics, 3D printing, and Rocket Club Live. And they are fully virtual. They have members from 29 different states and also from England, Ireland, and India. It's super, super cool, super exciting. You can check them out by going to my landing page at www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. And make sure you go through my page so you can take advantage of the free trial. Again, www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. Hey, Sumi. I'm so glad you can join me today. Um, I just wanted to start off by asking, I always am curious about everyone's childhood, especially the South Asian childhood stories and living in a typical South Asian household. So where did you grow up? And then also, what was your parents' immigration story? Yeah, great question. It is so good to be with you, Ami. I'm so excited. It's been 20 years. It's been 20 years since I last saw you. So this is fantastic. Uh, Nice reunion moment for us. Yes. Um, So let's see, growing up, uh, my parents immigrated from Karnataka in South India. 
um, from a small town and from a village. That's their their home locations in Karnataka. And they came in 1969. So, you know, I know over the course of our conversation, we're going to also dive into some politics and racial identity formation and everything. But they were beneficiaries of the Immigration Act of 1965. So they came through family reunification, et cetera. And uh, the first place they settled was on the West Coast in Seattle. That's where I was born a number of years later. Um, and then eventually my brother born in Vancouver. And then all of our growing up um, was in, right outside of Chicago in Evanston, Illinois, which is the first suburb north of the city of Chicago. Um, and it was also the first suburb to integrate outside of the city of Chicago. So it's got this really interesting racial history itself, um, both uh, incredibly diverse, but very similar to the city of Chicago, hyper-segregated in a lot of different ways, right? Um, so I grew up on the north side of Evanston for the first few years of my life. My dad's, actually, it's so funny that you said this. You said, you know, a uh, typical South Asian household. I think in a lot of ways, we were not a typical South Asian household. Um, my dad's a professor, uh, specifically a Marxist political economist. So not a business professor, not an engineering professor. Wow. Yeah, you are not. You didn't hit the buckets of doctor, lawyer, engineer, <laughs> or mostly engineer for our dads for that time. <laughs> yeah, we missed those buckets. Um, yes. So that's, that's my dad. And my mom uh, was a homemaker for many years and then went back to get her certification in early childhood education. And then she was a preschool teacher for a number of years. Um, so really growing up in this, in a household where we were talking about issues in sort of a local and global way from very early childhood, right? Like I can remember vividly dinner table conversations um, talking about Nicaragua and talking about the Sandinistas and the Contras and and because my dad, that was the conversation he wanted to have at home, right? So we were always reading newspapers and talking about it at the dinner table um, uh, while eating the incredible food my mom made. She's a like phenomenal cook, which I can't hope to compare to that, but eventually maybe one day I'll achieve. I'll same let, girl, I'll, same. Don't worry. Black mommy status. We'll see. I know. Um, so like I said, Evanston, this really fascinating town with its own really unique racial history. And on the first few years that we lived there, uh, until I was 10, we lived on the north side of Evanston. Um, definitely much more white. Uh, in fact, our grade school teacher principal, she bust in black students in order to integrate the elementary school on the north side of Evanston, right? Yep. Um, and then, and so it had the aspect of diversity, right? In that it was almost 50-50 black and white. If you look at my kindergarten photo, that's what it is. It's 50-50 black and white, except for me and Sarah Kim. We were the two non-black and non-white kids in the class. And then we moved to South Evanston which was um, much more uh, economically diverse, so more low-income families and a lot more Black families. So our school was actually 50-50, Black and white, because that was who was there too. Right, right. right. But very similarly, right, going back and forth between these contexts um, around uh, sort of binary Black-white constructions, all of my teachers were white and Black. So I know a lot of kids don't grow up with Black teachers. We grew up with Black teachers from... I'd say I had my first black teacher as a second grader and onwards from there, right? Um, but you have framed this in this larger sort of like South Asian identity context. And so this is like my first formational underpinning of what it meant to be brown in a black right. space, right? And I think that was also um, really fundamentally shaped by the fact that quite a bit of my dad's research took him back and forth to India so he studies the political economy of film industries of India and of Kenya and Canada. So three very disparate areas. 
But because of that research, we would go back and forth to India so much. So I used to spend, you know, entire summers, three months. One year we spent nine months in India, all in our villages, right? So it wasn't like we were in big cities. We were right, in right. our town. So, you know, I'm talking mid-1980s into the 90s, going in bullet carts to the fields, right? A very different existence than like, quote unquote, city Indians. Right. But you can imagine sort of this... Um, bicultural, tricultural, whatever you want to call it, existence, shaped heavily both by having this experience of a transnational childhood and yep. being very shaped by wearing my langa angis and being with my awantata, um, being with all my kakis, chikkamas, chikkapas, dorapas, everybody, um, eating our food, celebrating every single festival from Nagpanchami, which is a snake festival, all the way through Dipavali. Et cetera, et cetera. And then coming to the US, going back and forth, and it sometimes being very jarring and sometimes yeah. amazing because there was something very specific that I could hang on to for myself about being distinctly ethnically Indian. And not just Indian, but very rooted in um, like my community's culture. So a couple questions. It's super interesting. By the way, I lived in Bangalore for two years, loved ah. South India. I know, I know you weren't in, in Bangalore, but just loved the culture of South India. I live in Delhi as well, um, but definitely felt more drawn to the South Indian culture and the people. And yeah, sorry, sorry to my Punjabi friends. I love you guys. <laughs> if I had to live somewhere north or south, it'd be south any day. Do you remember what your relationship was with your culture? Were you, cause you did live in such a black and white community, right? And a lot of Indians or most Indians I know that are from Chicago grew up with Indians, right? And all, all these like very Indian filled communities, that's plain, like all, all the new ones that I have heard of. What was your relationship with your culture in terms of, did you feel proud of it? Were you like, was it confusing as a child because you were not surrounded by people, Indian people? Was it a positive, a negative? Oh, such a great set of questions. I love that. Um, we were not heavily involved with any Indian or Indian American community except one, which was a um, Indian leftist organization called India Alert. Nice. <laughs> and it was with that community that we did Ganapati Habar, Ganapati Puja, Diwali. So we did the cultural celebrations, but we also, it was a lot of political organizing that my parents were involved in. And one of the reasons we weren't heavily involved in any other Indian American communities really is because my parents, especially my dad, didn't feel any political kinship with us. Right. Folks. He's like, right. they're regressive, they're racist, they're classist, they're casteist. I don't want to be with them. So if you're going to not be with racist, regressive, classist, casteist folks, then you're probably not going to be with, unfortunately, a huge chunk of folks from our community. Yep. Yes. So we, need to be yeah. really blunt. we need to be really blunt about, you know. Some no, of it's actually part of my question. So I'm glad you brought it up. So your dad was, I mean, I hate to say this cheesy line, but way ahead of his time. Yes. Uh, I, you know, like, you know how folks use the language of like woke. Yeah. He was, he was woke back then. I mean, that's woke for an uncle. <laughs> very, very grounded in sort of a local, national and international um, understanding of political economy, of community organizing, if that makes sense. Right. So not just it makes language, total but- sense. It's just, I don't think I've ever met an uncle or an auntie that had that point of view, especially at that time, because I feel like you know, our parents' generation was so focused on making it themselves and bringing their own community in and trying to actually hold on to their culture or religion more, whatever that was. 
more so than even focusing outwards and looking out outwards at the community they were in in America, you know, like they kind of kept it more secular. So like the fact that your dad, yeah, had the foresight to be like, well, our people need some help too. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. Everyone, it sounds like you might have one of your upcoming podcast guests. I'm going to tell my dad that he should I should just interview your family all together. Your dad, Sunil, just make it a family affair. Yes, totally. But I, and I think that that question of like, where did we find rootedness and culture was so much in being able to go back and forth to India. So there was right. such a depth and authentic set of relationships and connections. It wasn't a recreated set of cultures, right, that we were performing in the diaspora, but deeply connected to um specific traditions of our specific family in our specific community, in our specific village, right? Uh, and I think that sense of rootedness on some levels is really profound, right? Because, right. Um, you know, I, I love being involved in all kinds of South Asian and Indian organizations. So, you know, by the time I got to college, I was like, let me find my brown people. <laughs> uh, and you know, I got involved in everything. The Indian Students Association, we created our own South Asian sociopolitical organization to do more of the political organizing that we felt was lacking in the ISA, even though I wanted right. to do all the cultural shows and all the dancing. But if you remember this from your own collegiate experiences, and it still takes place today, is that there's almost a um, reification of what, quote unquote, Indian culture is, which unfortunately, largely ends up kind of uh, recentering sort of dominant North Indian Hindi Hindu paradigms. Right. And some of that can be super, super fun. And some of it can also be, again, recentering the regressive. So again, finding, you know, finding where people want to fit in with all of that. But and I will say, like, I think having that strong rootedness was really helpful because I think it would be really easy and, and certainly my brother struggled with this, right? And I think there's yeah. around femininity and masculinity and the constructions of racial identity right. um, in environments. But, you know, for me, I started wearing Indian clothes to school in middle school and never looked back. I wore Indian clothes at least usually once a week. My shabar kameezes, my langas. And again, this is middle school in, you know, early 1990s, right outside of Chicago, Nobody else was doing that. And I, I didn't care. Like I felt a real sense of pride. Um, and I think it was my way of cloaking against the bullying that I was getting and okay. I was bullied pretty severely because I was a skinny, brown, dorky, nerdy Indian kid. We all, we all were. We all were. But the fact that you had the conviction in middle school, which is like the worst time so to bad. be like, you know what? This is who I am. I'm sure a lot of this confidence and courage obviously came from your parents who seem like badasses. Um, That's amazing. And especially the fact that you weren't surrounded by brown people. And the other thing that's fascinating is, yeah, I feel like you're one of the few guests I've had that found that those roots and that connection in the motherland versus like finding it here, you know, and you found it there and you brought it back with pride. And so you are kind of woke too. You and your dad, and your your whole family's woke. This is this is awesome. Dorky but woke. That's my middle school. Uh. You know what? If you weren't dorky growing up, then you would not be cool now. It's just the way. That's just the formula of our lives. I am so happy that it worked out that way because I'm like, you know, I mean, I'm not cool now, but being dorky is the way to go. It's totally fine. I am praying my girls are dorky. I'm like working on them to not be cool. Speaking in middle school would not be good. No, and that's what happens. 
That seriously does. I see. Yeah. I follow some people on Facebook just to see how they made it. But anyways, that's a whole other story. I <laughs> know. Oh, oh. oh, I know. So now I, I'm, I'm understanding the picture, you know, understanding what your dad has. Is he retired now? Is he still working? He just retired a couple of years ago. Okay. He retired as the dean of the College of Arts and Letters at Florida okay. University. So but- he obviously had a lot of influence on you, like academics. And your mom was also a teacher. He's a Marxist academic. So yes. you can imagine the battles he faced on his path. He's a brown, outspoken, dark-skinned Marxist academic who got tenure, got associate professor, got full professor, eventually became a dean for multiple institutions. And he has faced overt racism his entire career. But one thing that he's done is that he's told us about it. And I yeah. think the sacrifice that so many parents of Asian descent make is that they don't necessarily tell their kids because they think, I don't want to burden my children. Or I want them to just live their life. Or they don't, I don't know, when, I, when it comes to that, because I've asked my parents this, you know, quite a few times. I don't know if they were aware. Or maybe they just blanked it out. I don't even know. They blocked it out. Accessing filter to even understand what they were experiencing. Right. I think, I think that's real. Right. I just don't think they realize it because of kind of being new here. And they just assumed it was whatever it was, was normal. And so that's what I think, because my parents... We're in Charleston, West Virginia for a long time. And I'm like, guys, come on. <laughs> Let's get real here. Like something. Mom was like, no, totally fine. And I'm like, well, you know what? If that makes you happy, well, we can move on. But um, so then, and I always ask my guests this because it's just fun to talk about. What was your parents' view on dating, relationships, marriage growing up? I mean, it seems like your dad and mom were woke. And so not like my parents who were like, you must marry a Hindu brown Gujarati. Thanks, and that was like, and then there was no, there was no one else on the list. So, <laughs> so great. I was like, fantastic. <laughs> um, so let's see. Uh, my parents, from you know, by the time I got like that, the, they wanted to talk with me about you know boys and relationships and things like that. I mean, I like boys from like second grade onward, right? So first, I was like, first grade, oh, easy, like, yeah. So, yep. so great. Um, but they were really upfront about, you know, love whoever you want to love. The, and again, like, honestly, very unusual because, you know, by the time I got to high school, I had a couple Daisy friends. So I'll give you a picture of our high school. It was 2,800 students, Evanston Township High School, phenomenal, amazing high school with also its own deep-rooted sets of problems, right? Like right. arenas. Um, and by senior year, we founded an Asian club. And of those 2,800 students, we had 29 students in the Asian club. And that was literally every Asian in the school. We were like, are you Iranian? (laughs) Come on over. We had Pakistanis. We had Malaysians. We had Indians. We had Chinese Americans. You know, literally anybody. And you were like, have you flown over the subcontinent? (laughs) Just, Just come on in. Totally fine. Us and our siblings and our cousins, which was also the tragic part. So there really wasn't much of a dating pool there uh, because that would have been awkward. Um, Yeah. But, you know, I got to college and just surrounded by a sea of uh, not just Asian, but also brown, like they see Asians. I I went to Northwestern for my undergrad. Yep. Um, And Northwestern at that time when I went was 21% uh, Asian American. Pretty high, right? Coming from where I came from, from kindergarten through 12th grade, you know, really having like a strong sense of like, what is black and what is white, but what is everything else, right? Just whatever I understood of myself, going to college was like, ah, um, right? <laughs> Nirvana! Yes. Um, 
right? And and but my parents were really upfront, and you know, I was like, oh my gosh, all these like cute brown guys everywhere, and they were like, you can date and love whoever you want. So my my first boyfriend in college was actually black, and then my next one was Pakistani American, the next one was Bangla American, then a Desi, like an Indian guy, like so it was all over the map. Right, um, right. Tony, my friends in college did not have that experience. They had exactly what you described on me, right? That um, not only did their, were their parents very strict about who, first of all, don't date. But if you date, make sure that he, of course, it had to be heterosexual. So there's no you know room there um, for anybody to be anything else. And that if you're going to date, then he has to be of the same culture, caste, community, class, educational aspiration, et cetera, et cetera. Just, right? just so a few buckets to, to check. Just a few buckets, few right, buckets. Right, right. And it's really hard on them. I mean, this... We still had, we didn't have cell phones. We had landlines because obviously it was, you remember the yeah. late, mid to late nineties. Oh, so so my nice. parents had to do a check-in from their dorm at 9.30 PM, call your parents, let them know where you are. So um, some real, I think, social constro- controls exerted by parents in our community over their children, which then resulted, and you remember this too, how my friends were binge drinking, mm-hmm. were hooking up because mm-hmm. that was their form of understandably rebellion against some of the restrictions their parents had placed on them, which were not fair restrictions. I told, I don't totally blame par- our parents and the way they thought. I mean, that's where oh. they came from. And they were obviously more concerned being in this environment. Um, but yeah, I made up for it during my time in Chicago. So like, <laughs> wait a minute, there's people of other races here that are gorgeous. What am I doing? <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. I was in Chicago for three years as well. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a common story, right. Amongst a lot of us. And, yeah. and no, like you said, no blame or shame. They were doing the right. best they could with what they understood the world to be. Right. Um, but, but, you know, I, I guess, you know, you and me sitting here also as they see parents now, I think a lot about like, well, what do I want the world to be for my children? And what do I want right. our relationship to be? I would want our relationship to be much more honest than many of my friends were able to have with their parents because right. they would be honest with their parents. Could know? it be? Yeah. Yeah. And then that's just generational. And we also are lucky that we are able, we're aware of that. We are able to have that kind of honest relationship. I feel like I'm having that with my parents now. Yes. Yes. It just took a while, right? And they're like, oh, okay. You know, like maybe we should have calmed down. I mean, it's fine. It all worked out. Wearing a tracksuit, it's all good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a, it's a common story. So Northwestern, you um, graduated with women's studies and history as your major and then Spanish as a minor. Super amazing. Um, and then you went to University of Michigan, got your MA in higher education, and so I got to ask this, even though now that I understand what your parents did, did you always know you were going to kind of follow your father's track, like his journey in a way? Oh, my gosh. Not at all. First of all, thanks for reading my bio data. I appreciated that. Oh, that was- I have I have four pages of your of notes on well, stuff you've done and articles and half of it. I'm like, I don't really understand all those words. And so I'm just going to talk to her and just, yeah, ask I her questions. It. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I went into I actually went to college thinking I was going to be pre-med. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. There so you're, you're at episode 51 and I have a countdown of how many people have said this because it's just exciting. And so there are 37 out of 51 people that were pre-med. Just throwing it out there. Just throwing it out there. And I, you know, so many reasons, right? I wanted to be in a caring profession. Um, it was what I saw as a role model level. 
Um, I didn't feel that strong at math by the time I got through high school. So like I knew things like engineering, et cetera, were maybe not for me. I didn't even understand what the words computer science were at that time. Right. That right. Wasn't in my purview of understanding. Um, so yeah, doctor, doc- doctor it was. And of course the root of all of that was helping and healing, right. That, that right. was why I was interested in it. So I got to college and um, my first week, I was in uh, organic chemistry and calculus. And then at the end of the first week, I dropped both of those because I literally had no idea what was happening, right? I, I, w- I kept looking around being like, is, is someone going to translate any of this for me? Is there a magic show after this? Because <laughs> I don't really... Same story, by the way. Barely passed organic chem freshman year. And then I was like, Time to change. I'm done. Time to go that way. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye. Um, so, yeah, no, I dropped. And then, of course, it was both liberating but terrifying because the things that I had been doing, right, through high school, taking this class, that class, taking, you know, pr- taking AP bio, blah, blah, thinking that this was my path, everything crumbled on some levels. Right. And, and so then, you know, I started – Oh, and also on top of it, I took, I substituted because I dropped those classes. I had to pick another class. I picked statistics thinking, oh yeah, statistics. I understand that. Got a D my (laughs) freshman year of college. Got a D coming from being like, you know, nearly a straight A student. Oh my God. Oh, just sobbing at the end of my first quarter. (laughs) Right. And of course, you know, that when you, it's all weighted, your GPA. So if you basically shoot yourself in the eye your first quarter. Right. GPA is it's going to be rough to recover, y'all. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but so then I just started taking classes I was in, interested in, right? And the best part of being on the quarter system, if you're in staff or administrator or faculty, is rough because it's so short and you're into the next right. one. As a right. student, magnificent because it meant I could take way more classes every single year and explore and experiment. I took so many classes on um, African-American women's theater and Asian-American literature and um, history of Latin America and um, uh, women's issues in the Middle East. I mean, basically, I just took whatever was interesting. And then by nearly the end of sophomore year, my advisor was like, so it's almost the end of sophomore year. You should probably declare a major. And then I looked at what everything I'd done, and it was very obvious in front of me that my my interests ended up dictating my major versus my major dictating my interests. And so that's why I ended up double majoring in women's studies and history. I would have only majored in women's studies, except at that time, they would not allow women's studies to be a standalone major. What? Uh, girl, tell me about it. Yes. So I had to double up, which is fine. I doubled up, did history and women's studies, both of which coalesced and you know right. really mind altering on so many levels. I mean, think about, remember that movie, the matrix, Yep. right. And it's red pill, blue pill moment. And you see the world for what it is. And there is no going back on me. There is no going back. And this is why, I mean, it doesn't matter who I work with. I say, especially if they get a chance to go to college, take an ethnic studies course, take a gender and sexuality studies course, because there is nothing like it in terms of what will help you to understand the world as as it has been shaped. Right. And functions around you. I feel like it should be required. At this Girl, point, like, exactly. why is this not? This should be a requirement. It should start in high school. Like, it should start earlier. Even I don't mean I would say no. It just started. Like, kids are aware of what's going on, and I feel like a it should be required. B I am very jealous that you 
did that. I wish I had stopped and just started taking classes I enjoyed. I never did that. I was too scared. And so the fact that you were, you were able to do that and then figured out, Oh, duh, this all makes sense. That's, that's fantastic. You figured out your journey. I figured out my journey like last year, kind of, I think so. <laughs> and then jump a couple of years uh, at the University of Southern California, you get the dissertation of the year award. Amazing. <laughs> and this is on institutional change clients. Now we don't have to get into this because I don't understand any of it, but could you sum up what this dissertation is about? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what I ended up studying was um, transformational agents within institutions. So we, okay. whether, in this case, it was within elite higher education institutions, but you could transfer this idea to anything. Sorry, and you had already worked for a couple of years, obviously, in between. So, oh, yeah. I did. Yeah, you had, took some time. Then I went right. to, you know, worked, went for my master's program, worked again. Then I did my doctorate. Well, right. And I did my doctorate while working full time. Right. Um, and so the study really focused on transformational agents within elite higher education institutions. So those who choose to do two primary things. One, how do they work with low income, first gen students of color in not reproductive, but in transformative ways, right? Because I could work with a student and say, hey, here's how I'm going to coach you so you can succeed in this system, but the system as it is, is already stacked against so many people. So I could teach you how to individually succeed, but I'm not necessarily teaching you how to be a change agent for all the people around you. Right. Or I can work with you in partnership to actually teach you to alter the world around you while you succeed. So how right. do they work with students in these critical kinds of ways? And at the same time, how do they transform the institution around them, their department, their unit, the, de the institution itself through their uh, transgressive practices, right? And then what are the costs that they pay, right? What are the, right. what is, what is the, uh, on some levels, punishment inflicted on those who are considered to be too transgressive, who push the institution too far? So that was a study of all that. It was uh, my 256 page paper baby. <laughs> that is a baby. <laughs> baby. Nine, nine chapters. I, I loved my research experience. My, yeah. my dissertation chair is, um, I mean, one of the dearest people to me. He coached me and mentored me in such profound ways. And not everyone gets that experience. I mean, you know, so many people go right. through these and they get broken by it, right? Right. Because, um, the system's really uh, sometimes reductive for people, but I'm, I'm just, sure. I was lucky. I, should, I feel like that should, you should turn that into a novel. That sounds... <laughs> I didn't have time to read it before I interview, but I figure you can just explain it to me super quick. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm going to send you a PDF, girl. Don't worry about so it. <laughs> well, if, I to, if I have to interview your dad, I'm definitely reading that damn thing because then I can be like, yeah, so uncle, let me, let me tell you what's going on. It's fine. Um, so the career track, you started at USC, Director of Asian Pacific American Student Services. So... And I kind of want to go through uh, each of the of the roles you played uh, and kind of take away a takeaway from each one. So at USC, the first time you were there, what were some of the programs that you developed for for Asian American students? Great question. Um, let me actually quickly situate that. I mean, in a very quick story about college, which brought me to that. Actual, sure. Perfect. Yes. Um, which uh, was my first year um, within the first semester. You know, I got involved with the ISA. I did you know, all the dance shows. It was amazing. But then by second semester, I was still involved, but I was walking across campus and I came across um, a table of students who were protesting and they were giving away free t-shirts, which of course is what attracted me to the table. 
but in that conversation found out that they were protesting for Asian American studies. And so through that conversation, I ended up getting involved with the multi-year struggle for Asian American studies, which is an ethnic studies program at Northwestern University. Okay. Um, ended up uh, by my senior year leading that movement. So I ended up becoming the chair of the organization, the Asian American Advisory Board that was pushing the charge. And it was in total a seven-year struggle, fully led by students with, of course, allies across staff and faculty lines, but fully led by students. And so we finally got Asian American Studies at, at NU um, a year after I graduated. But, wow. But what, what, the, what the struggle showed me was on some levels what was linked to my dissertation, what was linked to the work that I was doing at USC's Asian Pacific American Student Services was about the nature of erasure and invisibility of Asian Americans, was about how um, institutions are very willing to take our community's dollars, but not necessarily willing to represent our communities in meaningful ways, about the power of ethnic studies, not just to be transformative for people from our own community, right, but for everyone to actually have a better understanding of what it means to be not just an American, but a global citizen, right? And how, right. Can, we, how can we actually live and dream and function better? Right? Yeah. How do you build coalitions? How do you secure meaningful allyship partnerships? I mean, these are all the, the roots and foundations of community-based organizing. Yeah. And I learned it there because we were on some levels up against an administration that really was utterly uninterested in what we were trying to advance. Yeah. And so you learn a lot also about how do you speak truth to power in a way so that you can be heard. We le- we taught student-led classes. We had petitions. We led marches. We had rallies. We tried to blockade the president. I mean, everything and anything under the sun. And then finally, you know, again, seven years in, and all of that then connects to me eventually finding a phenomenal home at Asian Pacific American Student Services at USC, which, you know, is a job I got, um, you know, back in 2004. Right. It's a long time ago. Right. I know. But really, I think foundational because it was where the personal and the professional and the political all coalesced for me. Right. Right. It brought together all the things I was interested in, right? Community-based organizing, education, um, serving the vast diversity of the Asian American community, right? Up nearly 60 different ethnicities under this huge umbrella in a meaningful way. And then helping people in our community, in this case, students at that time, right? how to understand themselves yeah. in the context of still a black, white, binary America. Right. Which is, well, so the population of the Asian American students at USC was 25%. Correct. That's a large amount. Yes. For uh, of a population to not be heard on so, so many levels, right? So So kind of a silly question, but what is the main reason for this? Is it because Asian Americans have remained quiet or is it because like what is it? That just our numbers aren't large enough? Like how would you break it down in layman's terms of why there's been such a struggle to have our voices heard? I mean, such that's such an excellent question. Um, I think you actually asked a question earlier that really spoke to you. You said, well, we should have ethnic studies earlier. Everyone should have it. We should have that in high school. Here in California, where they're actually moving forward on ethnic studies in high school as a mandatory graduate. You guys are ahead of everything. We need I'm to really excited about that. Yeah. Um, but the question that you asked is, on, on some levels, has the answer inside it. Why, do, why don't we do this? Well, the underlying thing is, is who does it serve by us not advancing these questions, by us not advancing this education? It serves white supremacy. It serves 
capitalism. It serves racism for us to not truly be able to fundamentally understand one another's experiences and how those experiences have been shaped by mechanized forces here in the United States, right? Right. So like, let's give a very specific example. A lot of folks talk about, oh, Asian Americans, the model minority, the model minority. I'm putting this all in big air quotes, listeners, sure. right? Sure. And we, of course, have reams of writing by brilliant scholars showcasing how that was a term that was developed post-1965. It was not a term given to us by us. It was a term given to us by white journalists and white academics who wanted to pit Asian Americans against who was most involved in agitating for their civil rights in the mid-1960s, Black communities right. here in the U.S., right? And globally. So yeah. if, you, if you create a category such that we are constantly aspiring to be the quote-unquote model minority in order to get some kind of reward or some kind of cookies from the white supremacist structure, well, then there's going to be folks in our community who say, well, yeah, yeah, stay on that treadmill to whiteness, because that's where the rewards are, and they will not be able to find kinship with Black and Latinx and queer and trans and working class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, communities. Right. And we also miss the opportunity, right, because we're used as a wedge against Black and other brown communities. We're used as a wedge. We miss the opportunity to build solidarity and to actually develop any kind of liberation practice that's good for all of us. I'm a real big believer in that, like, you know, none of us are free until all of us are free. Huh. Yep. And I think that's a sentence that people say, but it, it takes kind of a profound restructuring of the mind first before you get into any kind of organizing work to say, well, what does that mean for all of us to be free? And how, right. how is that operation deeply interconnected? So I think to go to your question, like, why, why don't we do this? Is because it serves the larger master. Do you also think, and I, and I figured that was going to be one of the answers, just based on, you know, all the South Asians we know and Asians we know uh, and, and the way we talk about being a minority, but not being a minority, kind of being closer to the to the white culture in terms of like the amount of money we make and our education and all that stuff. And so I was going to ask you, do, do you think part of this attitude is because Asian, South Asian people from the Asian continent are, are typically generically more educated and higher, higher educated and, and go to grad schools. And so feel like they don't fit in the same bucket, not necessarily as white people, but not as blacks or Latinos either. It's a great question. Um, well, so here's one thing. I think one of the, one of the myths that the model minority myth perpetuates is, is this concept that we are all well-educated and that we're all wealthy or at least comfortably well-to-do. Totally, I, totally. In my mind, that's what I would assume. Right. Like not being on the front lines and not knowing anything besides what I hear and what I know from my own community. I think a lot of people would, would think that. Exactly. And you just said something, two really important things, which is what I hear. So what is propagated by general mainstream media and our educational system and right. what we end up getting reinforced within the community, particularly right. if you're involved within similar strata of community. So then you get this like echo chamber around who we think Asians and Asian Americans are. But if you take a look at the data, there's a wonderful uh, um resource group called AAPI Data, AAPI Data, uh, okay. run by Jim Wong and Karthik Ramakrishnan. Phenomenal resource. It's one of the places, along with Advancing Justice, Advancing Justice is an outstanding national organization with branches in different cities, um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice. They have done some of the top-notch work on disaggregating. Disaggregating just means separating out the data right. on, 
on Asians, for example. And so what, if you go to advancing data, advancing justice's demographic data work, you can look at the disaggregated data for Asians based on um, high school education attainment level, collegiate education attainment level, income, and that's separated out because oftentimes Asians are lumped together by family income. So how, what is, how much money are the people in your household making versus individuals? Well, so many of people in our households, especially lower income community members, are living six or eight to a household. Right. If you count that as the household income, that's very different, right? And right. you see how that can be then used. They disaggregate it by um, uh, access to various healthcare resources. But here's the thing. Let's just break that up. Indians, Japanese Americans show up at the top of those lists, okay, in terms of generally income and educational attainment. And then it goes down from there. So by the time we get to Cambodians, Lao, Hmong, right. uh, as well as Samoans, Tongans, Chamorro, right? Pacific right. Islanders, Southeast Asians, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis. So for many of these communities, their numbers are actually lower than Black and Hispanic communities, meaning in terms of um, who is living underneath the poverty, federal poverty line, uh, how many people to a household, educational attainment level. And that's the thing. If we don't look at the data, then we keep on re-operationalizing the same pretty picture. Right. That isn't actually true, right? So if you go to little Dhaka, little Bangladesh, right right here in, in LA right now, you will see community members who are of the lowest income strata and the highest income strata within right. this community, right? But what happens is that the voices of those who are the highest income and highest educational attainment end up drowning out the voices for those who are low income yeah. and experiencing historic violence. If you think about the communities I just mentioned too, by the way, these are also communities within the broader Asian demographic that have experienced trauma, immigration trauma, uh, imperialism, colonialism, right? if you're talking about Laos, Cambodian, Vietnamese, et cetera, right? Right. We can't separate all of those things um, in our analyses of why are, well then, because you know, some people are, well, well then why are some Asians doing well and why aren't some not, why are some not doing well? Well, what have their experiences been, right? Right, right, right. I'm here post-1965, like so many upper class, upper caste, because we don't talk about this enough, right, Ami? Upper caste Hindus. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, there is a lot of nastiness towards our Dalit siblings um, from our own community. So who, who got to come here through selective immigration post-65 and who, who didn't? And how did they end up coming? And then how do communities get formed? So I think that... Then that gets reinforced, reinforced. Oh, Asians are wealthy. Asians are smart. Asians are doing fine. Why can't you be more like those Asians? Right. Which is really it's your fault. Message. It's your fault. And if you could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get the American dream, you quote unquote lazy black people, right? Because that's really the ugly underside of the model minority myth is that it is used to shame and blame. And then also you and me don't get to build kinship with our Black, Latinx, and Native siblings in any meaningful way if we're actually taught and conditioned to think that we are better than. And let me say right now, what just happened in Indianapolis, for example, at the FedEx plant, where that is a FedEx plant that is heavily populated by Sikhs? What happened in Oak Creek, the Gurdwara in Oak Creek? Yep. What happened to Balbir Singh Sodhi, uh, the first person murdered after 9-11, who is Indian, who is Sikh, right? Um, we are not exempt from state-sponsored and individually-sponsored violence. 
And the more we think we're exempt from that, the less we're actually able to build the tools to fight back against it when it does happen. I'm just realizing when you're talking like how, even though I think I'm learning and listening more to what's going on in our communities, I still have that narrative in my head. Sure. And I don't want it there, but it just is. And so it's just something that I think all of us are going to have to make an effort to really go out there and figure out the, the truth about these numbers and, and everything that you're saying, you know, like what is the real story? It just takes an effort and it's easier to be lazy and just replay the same narrative in our heads. Oh my God. And yes. live in that and live with that because, you know, we're, we're doing fine. Right. It's obviously a very selfish way of thinking, um, but fully admit that that's probably what I've been doing my whole life. And it's confirmation bias, right? Like, right. And points that I see confirm the existing bias and therefore I'm just keep on going on. So, you know, like the vulnerability just expressed, right? Which is like the unlearning is painful. It is. It's very painful. I mean, I think all of us, a lot of us, not all of us, a lot of us have started going through it probably even recently with Black Lives Matter. And we're like, oh, wait, that's racist what you're thinking. Like this is, you think you're not, but then it's just, it's all subconscious. And it's just, there's a lot of unlearning to do for all of us. Anyone says they don't need to unlearn is lying. Girl, just think about how we talk about color in our community. I know. Right? I know. The most, the most popular brand is uh, Lightning Cream, right? For the face. Right. Fair and lovely. Fair, fair and, and lovely. lovely. Fucking right. fair and lovely, man. Sort of. <laughs> well, <laughs> see, a few years ago, there was a fair and lovely that was a vaginal whitening cream. Jesus Jones, are you serious? Yeah, because apparently if your lady bits aren't white enough, that your dude might not find them attractive, which right. I think... One of the sickest things I've ever heard of. Right? I mean, yeah, my husband's always like, I know you need to bleach that shit. Like, I'm not, that's, I mean, it's always a problem in our household. Totally, totally, <laughs> totally. I hear you, girl. So, rough yeah. life. Yep. <laughs> Jesus. So, you know, yeah, you, I know you worked at USC twice, and I want to get to your current, your current gig. I know you have, um, oh, sure. Um, I know at Harvey Mudd College. So, like, you've had a lot of these fantastic, fascinating roles. Do you think each of these moves, and, I, and I'm asking this because I'm always curious about how my guests pick their roles, have have grown through their professional journey. Were you kind of like jumping, not jumping around, but where, did you move around because you still didn't know exactly where you wanted to finally fit or belong or your, what your final role was going to be? Or were you just trying to continuously learn about DEI and in, like everything that you had learned at school, were you just trying to figure out what makes sense to you in terms of the job? I spent almost eight years at that Asian American and Pacific Islander Student Affairs Department at USC. And then, you know, I, I pursued my doctorate full time, which we talked about and right. really got increasingly interested in, um, well, here I'm serving one, albeit incredibly dynamic and diverse community through leadership development, through critical identity formation, through mentoring programs, through service learning trips, all kinds of stuff. But I'm not functionally altering the structure around them that still renders them right. second class. And so that's why I started getting more interested in chief diversity officer types of roles. So how do you basically, how do you tinker with and alter the metastructure around right. people's experiences, students, staff, and faculty, so they can actually feel that they in, are included, truly included, that they belong, and that what's happening inside and outside the classroom can be the most transformative that it can be, Right most inclusive. And so that's why I ended up um, going to Harvey Mudd College to become their, I started off as their dean for diversity and then right. ended up becoming their assistant vice president for diversity and inclusion. And man, talk about Harvey Mudd College is an 
outstanding institution. It is a STEM liberal arts campus, highly, highly selective. So brilliant, brilliant people. And so really having to hone my blades to, to do transformative diversity, equity, and inclusion and social justice work at a STEM focused institution. So you just think about it, right? (laughs) Very hardcore, but what a place, what a place to like really literally hone my blades there and to to affect, you know, processes inside the classroom, outside the classroom, campus-wide learning, student work, everything. And then I got a call from the executive director of the USC Race and Equity Center in 2017. He said, Sumi, everything you've been doing at MUD, I admire it. And what if you could do something like that for institutions all across the country? And I was like, that is a very, very seductive sales pitch, sir. Yeah. And so that's how I made the leap. So these have all really been growth. And so I became the chief learning officer at the USC Race and Equity Center, working with campuses all across the country to advance their racial equity skills and abilities um, and strategies. And then Uh, And that was really, really exciting work, like building something from the ground up, launching something brand new. Right. I have a quick question on that. So you're working with 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 universities across the nation and, you know, trying to build strategies for them. Is it fair to say that strategies for one area wouldn't work for another? Did you have to, like, regionally focus on what would make sense or was it like one big program for everyone? No, that's, that is such a great question. So what we did first would be actually built out, as you, uh, what you can imagine, is 34 modules of learning, right? Because this piece about learning and unlearning is really key here. And particularly, this, this the program that I designed, the USC Equity Institutes, um, was focused on developing capacity for leaders in the provost cabinet, the pre- president's cabinet, anyone with leadership decision-making functions, to be able to go through this process of unlearning and relearning both, you know, language and skills and tools, but also strategic plans to advance in their own context. Because I'm sitting on the outside. I don't know your context and the specificity of who you are to the depth of core. However, if I can equip you with these lenses, skills, and tools, you can apply them in your own arena, right? And so that we built out this whole program. And then institutions could say, well, I want to pick these eight modules for a two-month learning experience that also is tied to a racial equity project for our institution. So they're taking the knowledge and the skills and then activating that into an actual um, program or plan for their institution. Are those programs still in place now? Yeah. Awesome. Look at you making an impact, Sumi. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, And now you started your own consulting firm, right? I do. You are a DEI strategist, consultant, speaker, trainer. I attempted to look at all your speaking engagements and I was like, um, I'm just going to talk to her again because there's a lot of speaking engagement. I was like, girl, you've been busy. I've been busy. I've been busy. First, how has it been starting on your, doing your own thing? Like having your own consulting firm? At first, I would say it has been outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah. Yeah, it's been exciting. It's been growth oriented. Work is flowing. Um, I'm mostly booked through the end of the year already. I know. I'm so glad I got you because I was like, uh, she said yes to me. All right. Just going <laughs> to pretend this is the way to go. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, it's fantastic. It's been really exciting on me. I, I, yeah. If nothing, I mean, this last year of COVID and lockdown and having the two kids at home and Sunil and me both working brought a lot of clarity as to what I wanted in terms of my quality of life. 
And I am so grateful for the 20 years uh, in the field, right, um, of of building my knowledge and my skills and my toolboxes and my ability to work with all kinds of different constituents from, you know, the higher ed side and the corporate side. And I just had this realization that like, I wanted to focus more time on my family and I wanted to do work with all kinds of organizations and entities. And so I made the leap in October and it's, it has really, I know just been amazing. Honestly, amazing. Now, the thing that is not amazing, of course, is also turning into your own bookkeeper. So right. doing all the business part of it is is always the most, I guess I would say, boring and sticky part, but it's right. also the essential part. Right. Um, you know, the vendor forms and the invoices and the contracts. And yeah. That's like the annoying learning part that you have to do because everything else you, you have been trained, you've been training for since, you know, kind of day one. And so, and th- this story of the pandemic helping people focus and really narrow down what they want to do. Again, it's been so common with all my guests and, and me too. And this is what happened to the podcast. This is what happened. This is why I have really, really finally focused on it because of lifestyle and what I, all the stuff I've done in the past 20 years, just all, this just made sense. And so I'm so happy that that came together for you. That's amazing. And I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the violence against our Asian brothers and sisters this past few months. Um, I know it's been happening for a long time, but especially the, the past few months. Um, and I know that's such, we can have a whole other podcast on that. And the, the, the one question I thought about asking you, because there's so much to it that I don't know and I don't understand what's going on besides the news. What is, Perhaps one thing that's been shocking to you about all of this, because mm. I feel like you've seen it all, right? You're on the front line. You've been on the front line. Um, and I know you're involved in it and, and there's ways for people to get involved, either donating, talking, you know, the many ways. But is there something about this time that's just kind of, you've been like, holy shit, this is crazy. Yeah, that's great. I mean, um, so you, you made a really good point there, right? That it's been going on a long time. That right. The very- the very history of Asians in this country is intimately tied to violence. So for every Asian group that came to this country or was brought to this country to fulfill U.S. labor needs, very quickly afterwards was an anti-Asian exclusion act passed, right? So Asians have experienced violence, and and we include ourselves, by the way. I strongly identify as an Asian American. That is my political and community-based affinity, in addition to being Desi, Indian American, a Kaneriga, a woman of color, right? Right. Um, But... But it's so historically rooted. Um, and so, you know, between that and the lynching of Chinese people on the West Coast, um, you know, Asians being run out of their home, um, the uh, internment in concentration camps of Japanese Americans, 110,000 Japanese Americans during World War II, none of whom were ever, ever, ever convicted of any kind of treason, 60% of whom were children under the age of 12, right? Um, violence is a common part of the story. The dot busters, you know, targeting Indians in 1987, New Jersey, um, murdering Navroz Modi and harming so many others. Um, the targeting of South Asians, uh, especially those perceived as Muslims mm-hmm. after 9-11. These are all intimately connected stories because underlying all of it is the question of who is an American and who is an other. Right. Who is the other? Who is suspicious? Whose loyalty is questioned? Um, who does not belong? And so, so it's it's a really painful part of the history. I think one of the things that that was shocking. I think a couple of things that have been shocking over this last year is just how sharp 
and visible the violence has been, right? You right. have probably seen videos. I have seen countless videos, particularly of our Asian elders right. being beaten in the streets. Vilma Kari, who was the Filipina 65-year-old woman in New York City who got kicked down and boot stomped while the security guards Guard. closed the door on door. her. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, I that one broke me. I mean, yeah. I couldn't stop crying for a week because what have our elders done to deserve something like this, right? Uh, I'm like, how, it, it, I, it's the same basic question, but I'm like, how, it's, that's a human being out there. Like, how are you, how are you just standing there? I don't how even understand. There? I just, it's, yeah, I know all these questions we all know, but just. Oh, no, but they should be the questions we ask. Cause if we don't ask those questions then we've lost like our moral center, right? If we become numb to it. That's what's happening, though. People are losing their moral center because, I, I mean, I assume out of fear, I, I can't think of anything else. I mean, or, or not caring, but. I mean, I think there's a few factors, right? I think that anytime that there's a national crisis, people look for an enemy. Right. So Vincent Chin being murdered in 1982 in Detroit, being blamed for the Japanese auto industry overtaking the U.S. industry is linked to Balbir Singh Sodhi being murdered in Arizona. September 15, 2011, is linked to the massacre at the Oak Creek Gurdwara, right? Is right. linked is, is is linked to Vilma Kari. L- looking for some something someone to blame. And then you that's been heightened, of course, in the last year with the whole Kung Flu, Wuhan. Um, I think it's too easy simply to blame 45 for that, right? He was right. he was disgusting and he amplified all of this. Yeah. But the roots of it have been there. Forever, in I country. think he allowed it to sharpen. Oh, absolutely! Right? He gave that, permission. Right? He made it, he made it permissible to be openly hateful on some. In a weird way, in a messed up way, it actually opened up our eyes because it was happening anyways. And so he just kind of opened up the window and was like, "Hey, guys, this is, this is exactly what this is what's happening." So, like, uh, the positive, if you can get anything out of it, is that we're all we all are becoming aware of it. And we need to be shocked by this. This is not normal. That is a hundred percent. I mean, it is a, it is a sick kind of positive, but right. Sick kind of positive. There's been more writing and more research published on Asian Americans in the last two months than I've seen in the last decade reading. And I'm talking about popular media, right? Like there's, there's no major news channel, cable news channel, no major news outlet that has not covered the violence against Asians in some way. Some more meaningfully, some poorly done, but some amount of coverage really bringing this again to to the forefront. Going back to your earlier question, you know, why is there invisibility? Why is there right. silence? So, that it takes this kind of violence for there to be exposure. But this is why we also have to capitalize on the moment and say, you know, the, the, the blinders that people are so quick to put back on when the immediate furor like subsides, you know, like there's a heightened awareness, particularly from white communities, but also other non-black communities after George Floyd was murdered last year. And then how quickly we see people kind of go back to business as usual. Right. I know. And and I was was about to just say this, like, of course, capital capitalizing on the moment is so key and so important. But that phrase is also annoying and it, it, it bugs me because I'm like, we have to capitalize on this moment. Like, I know we have to and I get it, but it just, it feels like a marketing ploy and it shouldn't be. It feels immoral. It feels immoral, right? And you're right. It just feels wrong, even though it has to be done. And I, I hear it in the news and I hear it, people talking about it. And I'm like, God, just 
Yes, but it just feels icky to me in a way. Well, there's so many community activists and organizers and educators. So many feel like, okay, we, this is, we have to put as much good analysis and information out into the knowledge sphere as possible right, right. now. No, for sure. It's the right thing to do. Knowing that the attention window will close and close and close and close. I know. And then we'll go back to silence and invisibility again, right? Oh so this is something we can't allow to happen. If the aperture is right. open, right. then we have to forcibly keep it open. Keep it open, uh, right, right. And, and the reason is it's not just because it's for our community, right? Like, let's take it to the next level. This is also an opportunity for us as Asian Americans to say that additional policing is not the answer. Right. Even if there's violence, policing actually tends to bring more violence, number one. We think about the 65-plus-year-old grandfather in Alabama, the Indian grandfather, who was beaten by the police for doing nothing more than being a dark-skinned brown man walking around in a white neighborhood, and he's still partially paralyzed. Yeah. I mean? Yeah. So the police he don't was walking in his own neighborhood, right? Or his son's neighborhood or something. Yeah, like his that. son's yeah. neighborhood, exactly. Yeah. So police don't help us in that way, number one. And they certainly don't help anyone in our community, especially who's low income, who's mentally ill, who's autistic, right? Um, there's so much violence against uh, autistic um, folks, particularly autistic folks of color, by the police. So at the same time, right, we we don't want to use this as like when the aperture is open to say, yeah, we want more police when in fact, no, policing is not the answer. We, we need community safety programs. We need mental health programs. So are there any like I know you, you do a lot of speaking engagements um, and you're, you train, I guess, I, I'm assuming different organizations. Are there any current projects you can talk about or that you're working on? Yeah, that's, that is fantastic. Um, so for example, uh, I, I do a mix of, um, uh, short-term, you know, um, couple sessions, engagements with organizations that are looking to sort of like change their lenses for the way they're trying to do the work all the way through much longer term projects. So one of the institutions I'm working with is a two year project with them. Okay. I also do a lot of keynoting, speaking, um, for conferences, for, you know, all kinds of things. But this week alone is, is really, really exciting. In fact, um, for example, I pulling up my calendar because you know, the brain doesn't have anymore, uh, but I'm with you right now, which is so exciting. Let me talk talk it out. Yes. Um, and then tomorrow I'm doing a two hour training with an athletics staff. So the coaches and all the staff at an athletics unit at a, at a campus Wednesday, I'm working with LinkedIn. I've been doing something with their phenomenal allyship Academy program. Um, so last week I was working with their cohort, um, a selective cohort that was from France, Spain, um, uh, Brazil, I mean, all over the world, plus the U S and then this week I'm going to be working with their cohort that is from Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, India, um, on, and moving past performative allyship into real and true engagement. And then also a session with them on white supremacy around the world. So very exciting. I'm doing a, a workshop this week on mental health and racism, um, doing a wonderful event this week for an organization called Mosaic Silicon Valley. And it's a, it's a, their first launch of this new program. And this one is all about belonging. What does belonging mean in today's America? Right. And there's got this really cool panel. It's, it's me. And then there's a filmmaker and an artist, and then they're closing it out with a multicultural dance party, blending Bharatanatyam and folklorico. Nice. So, so all kinds of very, very, very cool things and all over the map, but you know, a mix, like I said earlier, right. uh, 
higher ed institutions, corporations really looking to do some concrete work to shift their lenses and move the needle on their internal practices, right? Okay. It's all about, well, what are you going to do with this, right? right? Not just, do you have the right words? That's great if you have the right words. What are you doing with it? Right. Do you, so can people actually, can people reach out to you, organizations, companies, and hire you for engagements? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I actually went to one. So we lived in Bentonville, Arkansas before this. And I went to one, I, I'm assuming it was through Walmart. It was a home of Walmart and it was fantastic. Tons of good friends there. And I have a great friend there that does these sessions for Walmart employees and Bentonville for the community. Um, they're super interested and really wanting to get the community involved and understanding what DEI means. And anyway, so I I went to one uh, of the sessions and it was fantastic. And so um, remind me to introduce you to him. He is, his name is Sean. He's part of the Aspen Institute as well. Oh, fantastic. Um, But he's him and his wife were uh, some of our closest friends there. um, And they're always doing interesting training. I just want, you know, just connect. You never know. Yeah. And also Bentonville happens to be an awesome Awesome place. I loved it. And so I know I never thought I was like Arkansas. And then I was like, because we lived there for two years before Greenwich. And I was like, well, are brown people allowed in Arkansas? And my husband was like, can you calm down? Um, was we went there for his job, of course, because he was he's with Pepsi, but calling on Walmart, right? And if you call on Walmart, you you live there. They like they want you there. Those two years were I loved it. It was so much fun. Yeah, and so eye-opening because never lived around so many people that thought so differently, but became, I became so close to. That's beautiful. It was so, it was so good for me and my husband because we're so East coast, West coast, liberal, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and I grew up in Texas too. So I'm aware, but also was always in my bubble. Right. And then Arkansas, you're not. And, uh, it was, it was a fantastic two years. What some of my favorite years. And so anyways, we, I'll, I'll connect you if you are interested. And just some deep thoughts questions and, and you can, we can make, make them short. Two, two big questions. I had like five, but two main ones. What do you think people misunderstand about what DEI means and racial equity? Because mm. that's so, it's thrown, thrown around all the time. And I'm like, does everyone know what racial equity is? Cause I don't. <laughs> and then what DEI really means. And the second part, not even second part, second question is, do you think everyone is a little bit racist. Great. Super questions. Okay. You also asked me earlier, can people find me? I'm easy to find. You can just Google my name, Soman Pendekor, or you can look up somonpendekor.com. Super easy. All my infos. Yeah. I'm going to link all your stuff on the notes as well. Okay. Fancy. Yeah. Fancy. Um, I don't call my hair, but I'm fancy. Let's answer that second question. Is everyone a little bit racist? Um, Wasn't there a song? I feel like that should be a a song or something. Right. Um, I think we want to be careful about our language, right? And so I want to separate out. Um, I want to separate out bias and prejudice and discrimination. Okay. From, um, systemic and structural racism, right? Okay. So, do I think that everyone has some amount of bias and possibly prejudice? Yes. Yes. Everyone has biases, by the way, right? right. You, you and I could have a conversation right now about like, um, what type of body type do you prefer? There's a bias inherent within that. Right. What type of um, hair do you prefer? There's bias inherent within that. Right. Right. And of course, the biases then they magnify and then they show up in like how you go to Silicon Valley and you're like, wait a second, how come everyone looks and talks the same? It's because bias has replicated who gets hired. So bias isn't necessarily always negative, though. 
No, not okay. at all. In fact, bias can the, the function of cognitive bias is that it actually helps us to make quick decisions. Right. So for example, one of the reasons I don't get run down when I'm crossing the street is because I'm using all of my bias filters to make rapid fire decisions in this crossing the street scenario. Right. right? It's th- when our biases come up against social structures of how bias is situated, that then my personal bias lined up with social structures of bias ends up reinforcing biased outcomes, if that makes sense. Makes sense. Yep. Right. That's a good definition. Great. Yeah. So, so yeah, I actually, I, I, I think, and the research proves this out, right? It's yeah. not much just opinion. And part of that is because every one of us grows up in a society. We grew up in families. We grew up with the uncle who makes those jokes quote unquote jokes. The worst. The worst, right? We grew up watching TV shows. We grew up listening to music. So bias exists. Right. I just want to be clear about us separating um, bias. And then of course it's more forceful manifestations, especially prejudice, right? And oppression, which people can certainly exhibit um, in some really cruel and horrific ways, right? That's why we can actually have cross cultural and horizontal forms of violence, right. right? Some videos we have seen have been of people of color, specifically black people attacking Asian people. We need to be able to be explicit about how prejudice and bias and oppression can show up in horizontal ways across minoritized and marginalized communities so much because number one, we have not been taught enough about each other. And number two, that the mental health housing and other structures of care around people have been stripped, right. stripped, 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 right? right? Leaving us almost in sort of like a Hunger Games type of mentality. Feels like though, yeah, definitely. Right, and then yeah. let's just be really clear, what is systemic and structural racism? That is how racism is baked into every system and structure of this country from its founding. Right. And so, you know, this is why I would articulate that people of color can't perpetuate systemic racism. We experience it every day from the maternal mortality rates of black women, which are heinous. And by the way, some people say, well, that's, you know, uh, well, we need to look at uh, obesity factors and diabetes in black women. It cuts across all of it, Ami. There's such a prime example of systemic violence and racism embedded in the system. It doesn't matter if the black woman is educated, uneducated, obese, not obese, significantly worse maternal mortality rates, you know, at this most vulnerable, vulnerable moment of your life. Right. Right. That you're treated this way by the healthcare. And that's everything right from where, um, you know, environmental uh, hazards are toxic waste dumps, almost always put into black and brown neighborhoods where there are food deserts, where we have educational inequities, right. How black children are four times more likely to be put into disciplinary or special ed programs, which are a pipeline from the school to the prison versus white children for doing the same behaviors. So the little white boy who's precocious and high energy, the black boy is disciplined. Right. So, and 95%, 96% of American school teachers, K through 12 are white women. So when we talk about bias, here's a great example. Those women didn't get into the profession to be racist. Nope. But their biases show up in the decision making and in the disciplinary structures that they enforce in the classroom. Right. right? They got into schooling because they want to be caretakers. They want to deliver education to the most beautiful assets of our country, which is our children. Right. And yet here's what happens. Right. So that's why I want to make these real distinctions. That's good because it is kind of it does get jumbled up. Right. And you're just like. 
And I do, the one thing I feel like is happening is people are kind of understanding a little bit more that racism is systematic. It's just built into all these systems since day one. And so black people are, have started a hundred steps behind everyone else and are still getting pushed back. And they are getting blamed for that, right? And so I've even articulated this way that they didn't start, that they were placed. Placed, sorry. Yes, placed. Exactly. Exactly. So and then you asked about the definition of racial equity. Equity is different than equality. Equality right. says we start everyone at the same place, and then whether or not you thrive or fail, that's on you. Except right. it doesn't take a look at all of those hundred steps behind, right? And let's let's bring it home to our Indian American, they see audience, whoever might be listening to Tuckered Out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for every um, extra achievement class your parents put you into, the tutoring that you might have gotten, the SAT prep class, the GRE prep course, all of those cost money. The, your parents driving you to all of those different, you know, um, after school extracurricular events and activities that then look great on your application mm-hmm. materials to college, school, et cetera, et cetera, your ability to take the quote unquote unpaid internship over the fellow student who had to work two jobs because their scholarship didn't cover everything. Right. Right. These are all of those underlying factors. But here in America, we play the equality game, the equal opportunity game, right? the equity game. The equity game says we take a look at what underlies each person's set of needs and we build scaffolds of support to actually meet them where they are so we get to the equality of outcome. Right, not right. just the equality of opportunity. There is this great, and I'm not going to describe very well, but there's this great picture, cartoon thing of those kids standing over the fence. Is that right? And that's why I, I think I remember seeing that and being like, oh, I'll, I'm going to link it to the episode as well. But I think that was a good, simple way of just kind of describing what that means. And I was like, ah, I get it. Um, again, though, so much, so much, for, to, so much to unlearn, even for someone like me who's trying to learn. I'm just like, oh my gosh, just realizing stuff about how I've been thinking and what I've been thinking in general, right? And being in my own South Asian bubble, which I think a lot of South Asians are. Right. Whether it's their fault or not, it's, it's community, it's a bunch of things. But now as an adult, it's just, it's time and for our kids, right, to learn. Cause I feel like with our parents, again, they didn't have the bandwidth to even go there. Uh, you know, besides, Besides your dad, who should have been teaching everyone everything, um, <laughs> and who I will be hanging out with very soon. Okay, um, okay so we're going to do fun, fun, fast round. All right, first sounds thing, good. First thing that comes to your mind. All right, what is the best compliment you have ever received? I think the best compliment I've ever received, and I've received it a few times, which makes my heart kind of glow, is um, uh, you explained things to me in a way that I understood and that make me want to do better with the world around me. Okay, you just did that to me, so I agree with that. And you explained it in a way where it wasn't patronizing. You're like, yeah, that's a great question. And then, you, yeah, you're, yeah, I love you. I'm going to give you a hug. Because um, a lot of times I'm like asking guests a question. I'm like, I know this sounds dumb, but I didn't feel dumb. Like, it was this, you educated me. It was great. How would your parents describe what you do for a living? And I'm asking you this because usually my guests, have, you know, their South Asian parents usually say like, oh, computer or whatever. <laughs> I feel like your parents know, but want to, I want to ask anyways. Um, so my parents uh, definitely took them some time to understand it because even though, right, even though I'm in academia, I wasn't a faculty member and I right. wasn't a 
prior dean. I was in student affairs originally, and then a chief diversity officer, then a chief learning officer, et cetera. But I think the way they describe it, um, let, let's go to my mom, right? Um, who is not in the academic sector. Right. But I think you would say, uh, you know, my daughter through her work uh, helps organizations and people to be better. That's nice. My mom used to be like, eh, <laughs> something. She's married. She has two kids. It's, it's fine. She's, she's read a lot about, you know, she's read a lot more about social justice. She's been the one, like, if any of her friends, you know, my mom's 75 years old. And if her friends are like, yeah, you know, my my daughter is, is now a boy and they want me to use he. And my mom's the one who's like, well, that's who they are. So you say he. So, you know, and again, it's what is it? That's That's not from the town she came up in. That's not from... You know, my grandfather, her father, right. who wouldn't let his daughters out after dusk because one of them might get a bad reputation, right? Right. He came from the most, you know, traditional on some levels of roots, but they're iconoclastic in that way in that they're they're constantly like reading and trying to push their understandings, whether it's through novels or through academic literature or through the New York Times or whatever, right? Wow. So yeah, I guess that's how my mom would say. And you know what's funny about me? My brother also came up through student affairs, multicultural affairs, eventually became a dean of students, dean of diversity. And now he is the inaugural chief diversity officer at Zynga, the games company. Yeah. I want to come to your family reunion next time. Okay. Just, <laughs> just let some you know. Like, you know, remember, I mean, she's coming. Don't worry about it. We're talking a lot of shit together. I love it. Yeah, it's fine. What would you pick for your last meal? I think anything my mom cooks. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I just know. Vast, involving vast quantities of rice or maybe her um, fresh, crispy, light dosas with her homemade chutney and sambar. I was just or, about to ask you dosas. Cause... Or, or her gunpanglas, which I love gunpanglas. Um, oh so, yeah. yeah, I can make like one Gujarati meal, like one thing. And I'm like, okay, kids, here you go. <laughs> Get to know your culture, thanks. <laughs> if you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive... Who would they be? I'm, like the randomest names are coming to my head. I mean, that's it. Uh, that's it. That's what Fast Round is about. <laughs> okay, so first, you know who came to my mind first? Sean Connery, because Done. I'm a huge Bond fan. I wanted to be a Bond girl when I was younger. Still can be. Okay, thank you, girl. I appreciate that. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Karl Marx. Um, I would love to have a conversation with him. And a third person. Let me think. And you said dead or alive, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Sean Connery, Karl Marx, this is a very strange list now. You know what I'd say? Actually, my great-grandmother. I had a feeling you would say something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, Bagamoa. All three at the same time would be awesome. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Bagamoa would definitely teach Karl Marx and Sean Connery a thing or two. Let me tell you, girl. 100%. If you could have a billboard with anything on it and for free forever, what would be on it? Oh, my God. Anything. <laughs> With anything on it for free? And it would be up forever. I mean, these questions are like wildly wonderful. <laughs> I guess maybe in the context of everything we've been talking about today, hold your loved ones because tomorrow is not guaranteed. That should be a t-shirt and a billboard. Last two questions. What's one thing people seem to misunderstand about you? Well, um, this is this is funny. You know, sometimes people tell me like, oh, so me, you're this and I'm not saying this to sound egotistical or anything, people are like, oh, wow, you're really smart. And, you know, you, you seem intense and like, you know, you take your work really, really seriously. 
I'm ex- I'm extremely dumb and lazy. <laughs> mostly like to eat and sleep. And my number one favorite activity is watching movies and reading romance novels. That's uh, especially romance novels set in the early 1800s England. I've probably read I don't know almost over 2,000 at this point that's, in my life. That's my jam. That error and lo- yes! just all that stuff. And why do I want to live at that time when women had no rights, but I just love it anyways? Like what's Regency fiction, like just entirely populated also by like wealthy white people. Yeah. So so I just, I just want, you know, I think people sometimes miss that. Like I am a dancing machine, very silly, extremely lazy person. High five. I love it. You should, we all should be lazy more (laughs) actually. We should strive. So I I love that you said dancing person because my last question to all my guests if you were, I don't know if you remember this, but I used to break dance back in the yeah. day. And, um, you know, I still think at the age of 41 that I can still dance, uh, even though it's getting uglier. So whenever we meet again, are you okay to have a dance off with me? Hell to the yes, girl. All right. That's all I need to know. Now listen, I may injure myself, like keep the Ben Gay and some Advil hand. <laughs> like, let's do this. Wow, wow, just wow. What a fantastic and really honest conversation. I feel like my IQ jumped a couple of points. You guys, please check out her work. You can go to her website, which is S-U-M-U-N-P-E-N-D-A-K-U-R.com or check her out on IG, which is Dr. Underscore Sumi. As always, you can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast. And the site, the nice new shiny website is tuckeredoutwithummy.com. I cannot believe it's the end of April, but tons more to come, guys. Thank you for listening. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>